Hey prospectors, bonus episode for you on this Sunday. I hopped on late Thursday night with Millard from Locked on Diamondbacks to talk the Corbin Carroll debut there in Arizona, how you divide playing time amongst all of these young outfielders you have now, some of the top five prospects in the system now that Corbin Carroll's going to graduate, and then an ETA on a Jordan Lawler and a Drew Jones, and when to expect them to join the group in Arizona. A little bit of a longer episode, but y'all enjoy. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Friends, but without further ado, we're here to talk about prospects, the future, and there's nobody better to do that with in the podcasting network in the entire world than Lindsey Crosby of Locked On MLB Prospects. Let me take my name away so we can see your beautiful name. Lindsay, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. It's been a wild week. A lot of stuff's happened in minor league baseball this week, but it's been a good one. Yeah, minor league baseball. You know, it's September, so this is another busy time for you because all these young prospects are going to start to get called up, and we mm-hmm. saw the D-backs kind of start this train this past week because they called up the number three prospect in all of baseball, according to MLB.com. Some other websites have him number one. I like those websites a little bit more that have him number one. And he's here. And Lindsay, if you've seen him, first impressions, but I first want to know, is it the right time to call up Corbin Carroll? Yes, there is no more valuable uh, time period than right now. That that one-month stretch where, apologize for this, but like this, there's no stakes. You know, Mm -hmm. you're not in danger of losing a wild card or a division spot if you drop some games. You can bring guys up and see what they look like against big league pitching uh, in that environment and then what they need to work on over the the fall break. And honestly, Corbin Carroll has looked pretty good in the games that I've watched so far. Yeah, and I... I've heard people make the argument like, let's just bring him up next season because this season doesn't really matter. The games are meaningless. Let's just bring him up next year when we have a chance to win and compete. But I agree with what you just said. Like, let him take his, let him take his lumps now. Like, if Corbin Carroll gets called up and he struggles, you know, to start his major league career, like, I'd rather, rather that be in a season where we're not really working toward the postseason. Like, the D-backs are trying to win games here, but we're pretty much out the wild card race. So I would rather him come take his lumps now, see what he has to make an adjustment for, and then have the whole offseason after getting a taste of major league pitching to see what he has to do and improve on his game for next season because like you said you look at those minor league numbers and they're insane Lindsay like what he was able to do in the minor leagues was phenomenal and I want to know like do you think playing in Reno a place where people have considered it like a higher elevation place do you think any of his numbers are like inflated or do you think what we get from Corbin Carroll statistically is going to translate to the major league level so most of his hits in Reno you know when you're in elevation you're in a drier climate like that with the humidor the main thing is like how far does the ball carry? Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I understand, from what I've seen, a lot of his home runs would have been home runs in big league parks. For the record, that double in Philly would have been a home run in like twenty-eight of thirty ballparks. That was he was robbed, dead center, dude. Yeah, like just straight away again, twenty-eight of thirty ballparks that have been gone. But that's insane. Uh, there in Reno, like most of what he did translates over as far as if it was not at elevation, if it was in a traditional sized and temperate ballpark that all st- would have still counted. So 287, 408, 535 and 33 games. Uh, ridiculous. Um, it just ca- kind of showed he went double A, triple A to the majors and he's just consistently carried all the way through. 
And what do you think his biggest skill or strength is when he's coming to a major league level? Because just watching him, I think the thing that I noticed the most from watching the game so far is the freaking speed he has. Like, I know everyone talked about his sprint speed when he got called up, and it's mm-hmm. legit. Like, the, the D-backs are just posting videos of him rounding the bases because the, just the way he looks when he's running, he just looks like he's running harder than everybody else. Then he's also short, so his legs are just moving quicker than everybody else. He's like Kyler Murray, basically, but on the MLB <laughs> baseball field. So what do you think his biggest strength is that he's bringing to the major league? So, like you said, speed is as advertised. Um, He hasn't really had a chance to make more than like one or two plays in the outfield, so I can't really talk Mm -hmm. to the defense. But I've noticed that offensively, he's been making quality contact. And the big thing that we always look for when a prospect moves up to the major league level is against that higher level of pitching, how are you going to handle the elite spin? And how are you going to handle the elite velocity? Because the guys you face in the minor leagues don't always give you that same sort of challenge. He's had very good, like very high quality um, at bats that I've seen so far. He's not, he's not overly chasing pitches. He's making good contact. So like that's something that not every prospect picks up right away. And that's the big reason I always advocate for that little window at the end of the season is so you can see, like, so they can get a real glimpse of what 100 miles an hour on the black looks like or what that slider breaking away looks like so they can go work on it. And he's just taking them and, hitting them dead, you know, dead center in Philly. So, I mean, that's what's what's impressed me the most so far. Yeah, I think I really, because that first game in his debut, he strolled up with the tie, the tie game, 7-7. I keep saying, I keep wanting to say tie-tie game. It was a 7-7 tie ball game, and he strolled up, and he did exactly what he just said. He went the opposite way, perfectly executed base hit, and he wasn't trying to do too much with it. He wasn't trying to pull it down the line for a home run or do anything crazy at the plate. He just took what the pitcher gave him, and he just slapped it the other way and found that alley, found the grass in between the two outfielders. So Corbin Carroll so far, I think, has been really impressive, and I – like, where do you think he fits in the lineup? Do you see Corbin Carroll as more of the top of the lineup kind of guy, as a table setter because of that speed? Or do you see him as more of a middle-of-the-order bat because he's also a guy that has a little bit over-the-fence power, that gap power, and seems like just a great overall contact hitter, so maybe he should be an RBI producer for you? I'm not making a comp, but the way that I want to see Corbin Carroll use is kind of like the Braves use Ronald Acuna. Put him in leadoff because... Uh, yes, he can make things happen when he gets on base. He can steal bases. He's very fast. But uh, he has the the power potential. And so put a pitcher on notice from pitch one. You have to hit your spots. You have to be on your game because this dude can put the ball out with one swing. So I think you should lead him off. Uh, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, he's probably batting third or fourth or fifth. But in the modern game, the way that they play it now, Put him at leadoff, um, you know, and just get, just leave it open. Let him do what he needs to do to get on base. He may swing for power. He may go for contact. Let him handle his own game. But bat him leadoff. Okay, I don't I don't mind that. I like that comp for Ronald Acuna in terms of how the Braves utilize him because we've even seen the Red Sox and Dodgers do that with a guy like Mookie Betts, who we know has power and speed. But you make him the table setter at the top because of how good he is at getting on base and he can start the game off with a leadoff home run and all of a sudden you got a lead. So I wouldn't mind that for Corbin Carroll as well. Um, I think leadoff would be interesting. I would just want to know who's hitting behind him, who's number two, because I think the D-backs just have so many options when it comes to their lineup. It could be Dalton Varsho, it could be Ketel Marte, it could be a Josh Rojas. Like there are just so many options. And then of course, over the next couple of years, you have guys like Jordan Lawler and Drew Jones coming up. Like the D-backs options are just gonna be so crazy in a few years. And I just want to ask you, oh, what do you want to say, Lindsay? I was gonna like 
I was going to absolutely agree with you. This, and we talked about it last time we were on here. Like, I think this might be the best one through nine in baseball in just a couple of years. Um, I mean, I guess like just from real briefly thinking about it, uh, you would do, if you did Carol, I could see doing like a Carol, then a Rojas, uh, when he was hitting a Kettle Marte and a Christian Walker as a one through four, that's pretty healthy. <laughs> I mean, that that's a pretty dangerous one through four right there. Yeah, and then you're still going to have guys like Varsho and Carson Kelly and Emmanuel Rivera. Like, I don't know the ceiling for Emmanuel Rivera, but so far what he's done in a D-backs uniform, like he's displayed a lot of power. And Varsho's still going to be a guy that gets you close to 20 to 25 home runs with some speed as well. And Carson Kelly... I mean, it hasn't been a great season for him, but since coming back from injury, he's been a lot better than he was the first month and a half, two months of the season. I should have put my phone on Do Not Disturb. I don't know if you saw that. I just got like a FaceTime in the middle of this. Hold on. Let me make sure my computer's on Do Not Disturb. My little sister, you know, first ASU game of the year. So she's out there. She's trying to hang out after. I'm like, little sis, I'm in the middle of a podcast. We can't Jeez. talk right now. But yeah, for the D-backs, like you just mentioned, because uh, you kind of led into my next question that I was going to ask you because like if the D-backs just stand pat in terms of internal development, like they're not out there to make trades. They're not out there to sign players in free agency. They just say, hey, over the next three to four years, I just stand pat and just build our team through internal development. Do they have the pieces, the young guys on both the MLB level and the minor league level to just build a playoff team through that kind of variation? I think you do, depending on how long it takes Drew Jones to get to the big league level. And obviously out right now with the shoulder injury, such a fluke injury that seems to always happen to your first your first draft pick. Yeah. But but like just looking at, okay, look at the outfield, for instance. Like right now you've got Corbin Carroll, Alec Thomas, uh, Dalton Varsho. Okay, well, you also have Stone Garrett, you know, I've got Jake McCarthy. I've got notes on all these guys for later. Yeah. You know, infield, you've got all the way around the diamond with the Christian Walker, Kettle Marte, Josh Rojas. We, you know, Jordan Lawler coming up at some point in time. You still have Perdomo. You have Rivera. Like, you have the pieces to build it just now, never mind who you can bring it in free agency. Um, and then the guys who would be coming up, if they're going to replace one of these guys, it has to be somebody very, very good. I would be a little bit nervous if I was on the farm um, for the Diamondbacks thinking, okay, like, yeah, I have to finish developing and I have to find a way to get into this lineup. Yeah, and... Considering like how many players they have, like specifically in the outfield, like would you actually just try to package some of these guys that they have and maybe try to, you know, in a couple of years, maybe move them for a star player? Like, I don't know. I broached the topic on my podcast like a couple of weeks ago. It's like, hey, the Angels, Angels are selling. If Otani's on the market, like in a couple of years, like why not give up one of the three of Lawler, Drew Jones, or Corbin Carroll, plus a Josh Rojas and maybe an Alec Thomas or something, and then maybe another. 15th prospect like why shouldn't the d-backs trade one of the three top guys and still keep a drew jones and jordan lawler and send away a corbin carroll in a mix of other packages for shohei otani yeah my thought process is depth will always work itself out and so whether it's injuries whether it's ineffectiveness whether it's the the ability to go out and trade for an impact bat an impact arm whatever it may be uh, you'll find a way and somebody will kind of naturally settle uh, without playing time. I'm going to be really curious to see how the rest of this season shakes out because my thought process is Carolyn Thomas pretty much can't come out of the lineup. You have to leave them in every day. And so you've got one outfield spot to divide around like four guys. And, you know, this is, you're doing this, you, you'll do this next year. And then eventually you're going to add Drew Jones to this. And so, like you said, it's, it's almost inevitable a guy's going to get moved or two guys will get moved. 
I always lean towards keeping one more guy than you think you need okay. simply because of injury and th things like that. But I think it's almost a certainty some outfielder is getting moved out of here. Well, you say Thomas and Corbin Carroll, the guys who should be the mainstays in the outfield. But I got to ask, because this guy, Jake McCarthy, I kind of want to move the conversation to him because this was a first round pick back in like 2018. I got to say, like coming into the season, like he was not on my radar. Like Jake McCarthy, I just considered like a fourth, fifth outfielder, a guy who was going to be like a quad A player, just get called up from AAA to the major league level throughout the system, just kind of go up and down. And when the D-backs need a left-handed bat with a little bit of speed, they call him up and bring him in as a platoon guy. But the way he's played in the second half of the season and his numbers overall in the year, like it's got me questioning, like should this guy come into camp next year and really battle for one of those starting spots in the outfield? And it's like, Alec Thomas, he's elite defensively in center field, one of the best defensive center fielders I've ever seen. But if he doesn't pick it up with his bat, like, could he not lose his job or at least his starting job to a guy like Jake McCarthy? And then you have Corbin Carroll already in the outfield as well. Now it's like, all right, maybe it's Thomas or Varsho for that third outfield spot. Yeah, Jake McCarthy is a guy, when you look at, I mean, it's, a, it's 70 games. So it's, you know, it's a decent sample. Uh, you know, 288, 348, 458. He's hitting... A, above where he historically has hit in the minor leagues. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of going back, most of his home runs, he's pulling the home runs. You're fine with that. Uh, the thing that I've noticed that's different last year to this year is he's much better on breaking pitches. So last year, I, th I think his batting average on breaking pitches was like 130. And this year it's, what is it? It's like 324. So he's significantly improved. And that's a jump that we don't typically project a prospect to make. Something that big. And he always had a below average hit tool um, from, from the prospect apparatus, from us. And a lot of that was tied to his performance against breaking and off-speed pitches. And off-speed, he's gotten better. But breaking pitches specifically, he's significantly improved. On. And I think it's a big enough sample size where we can kind of say, like, no, this is who he is now. He is just a better player against sliders and against curveballs than he has been in the past. And so... Yeah, he's probably going to compete for the job. Uh, defensively, I think he's fine. I think you would probably leave him in in left. And you would probably, you know, Carroll would be in center if Thomas didn't start. Or Carroll would be in right and, and Thomas would be in center if he did. But it's a good problem to have. And then what does Dalton Varsho do? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a big thing. It's like, how much do you, did you like Dalton Varsho as like a pure catcher coming up? Because maybe... You just platoon him a little bit more with Carson Kelly, and it's really like, okay, if there's a lefty on the mound, then Carson Kelly's catching. If there's a righty on the mound, you just put Dalton Varsho as the catcher because you're just so loaded like in the outfield with Jake McCarthy. And it's like the DH is going to help a little bit with that, but still, you have so many outfielders. It's like I still want Stone Garrett in my lineup as well. So how did you feel about Dalton Varsho? And if he had to move into being a catcher a little bit more, how do you feel about that for the D-backs? So offensively, I think he's going to back up a bit when he catches. I've just I've seemed to have noticed he does better offensively when he's in the field versus catching. Uh, part of that just kind of kind of comes down to how much energy it takes to be a catcher, and that's yeah. why catching offense in general is lower than usual. I think that having him as your second catcher and your fourth outfielder is a very valuable role. You can get him, you know, a good probably three starts a week in that role. Get him some other appearances to pinch hit. I could see a scenario where in games, you know, you pinch hit for an out Thomas and then Dalton Varsho stays in the game and plays right or plays center once Thomas has been pinch hit for. I can see that role for him as well. Um, I do think you lose a little bit, like I said, offensively when you have him catch, but 
he can do enough stuff. You have the DH spot. You don't have both of your big mashing first baseman yet because you've got Christian Walker. You don't have Ivan Melendez up yet. So you've got some DH spots you can put him in. I think you can get enough use out of him. Okay. And like if you had to just like, I guess, rank the ceilings or like the confidence level in terms of the guys actually like hitting their peak in terms of Varsho. Thomas and Jake McCarthy like how would you rank those three in terms of your confidence meter because I don't know Varsho's had the most major league playing time he's seen the biggest growth from year to year but he hasn't been phenomenal yet Jake McCarthy I didn't think that you know the sample size is 70 games but what he's done so far is making me have a lot of hope for the potential of his future and then Alec Thomas he hasn't quite put together at the plate yet but defensively like he could be a platinum glove kind of person center fielder wise so how do you rank these three in terms of confidence and hitting their ceiling i think it's actually probably as of now it's probably the order you gave it's probably um it's probably varsha mccarthy thomas simply because we you know mccarthy made such a significant improvement that even if that regresses a bit you know and kind of normalizes it's still going to be significantly better than where he was um the only caveat there is does that change next year? Like I said, I think 70 games in is enough for that to, to hold. I don't know that for a fact, but I feel like McCarthy and Varsho, uh, we know a lot more about who they are, and I feel a lot more confident about their projections than Thomas. Thomas has probably one of the higher ceilings if he can get the offensive side together. Like you mentioned, he's not quite producing there yet. Um, and that's something we've always known that that wasn't necessarily his strength. Um, I think that, his his hit tool is above his power tool, but I'm not sure how long it's going to take for it to come in. And a 297 on base is not going to be good enough on this team when you have prospects like a Drew Jones coming up behind you. So I think Thomas could be the better one, but I think he has the longest way to get there and he has the less the least confidence in getting there because he has such a long journey. That's interesting. Are you worried about Tom? Like, how much of a concern was his offensive profile for you? Like, do you think, you know, worst case scenario, do you think he's just like the Nick Ahmed of center fielders for the, the D-backs team? Like, I don't want that, you know, personally. Yeah. Um. No, no, it's, I'm not super concerned about the offense. I mean, okay. AAA last year, he hit 369, 434, 658. It was a 20-game sample, so there could be some small sample size there. But for the most part, uh, I feel like the tools are there. It's just he's always been a little bit of a slow starter at a new level with the exception of that one cup of coffee last year. So um, give him some more time. If he, if you're at the All-Star break next year and he's still hitting like this, that's when I'll be concerned about is he going to get there? Is the bat going to come around? Yeah, because I want to give him opportunities. I want to give him the chance to, you know, rectify what he's doing and improve because he's still so young and it's not like this D-backs team is ready to win. But at the same time, they're so loaded in the outfield and all these other outfielders are just playing better than him. It's like, does he deserve to get opportunities when so other, so many other guys are eating? And that kind of leads me to my next point of Stone Garrett, who also very small sample size so far. He's only played six games. He's got like 23 at-bats. But so far on the MLB level, he's looked good. He came up as a profile, as a power bat. He was one of the league leaders in home runs in the minor league. And so far in six games, he's got uh, two home runs. He's got a few doubles. Like He's been an extra base hit guy on the MLB level. But you know, when you see some of those minor league players and they put up those big power numbers, they're kind of inflated like a maybe like a Seth Beer. Like you don't actually think those guys offensively is going to translate to the MLB level. But for a guy like Stone Garrett, do you think what he did in the minor leagues could actually translate to what he can do for the D-backs? So I think what we've seen 
in his big league sample so far. One, extremely small sample size, but he's mm. been feasting on fastballs. Most of the damage that he's done in, his, in this small sample has been off of fastballs. And so I'll have more confidence into what he is, is actually going to be once teams have made that first big adjustment to him. Uh, and the comparison I always like to give people on this is Austin Riley. When Austin Riley came up, he was just crushing bombs. And then the entire league learned, you can throw Austin Riley a slider down and away, and he will chase it all day long. And mm-hmm. it took him a while to adjust. And so that's what I'm waiting for with Stone Garrett, is this is his first call-up. This is the first time we've really seen him at the big league level at all. And, and so I want to see how they adjust to him, and then how long does it take him to correct from that? Because right now, he's been very dependent. His production has been very dependent on hitting fastballs, and that is not sustainable at the big league level. Yeah, and does the fact that he's like an older guy getting called up, does any of that worry you? Because he's kind of had like a pretty weird career. Like he was one of the uh, pretty good minor leaguer when he first broke in and got drafted, and then he took like a little bit of hiatus. There was the COVID year. Like he literally went into real estate and was like a real estate agent for like during the COVID season, and then he came back, and now he's like one of the league leaders in minor league home runs, and now he's playing on the MLB level. So he kind of had like an unorthodox path. So does anything that he's, you know, his path, his journey to the D-backs, his age, does any of that concern you into him and his future? The age does as far as the organization isn't nearly as invested in him as they are in some of these other players. And Mm. you see it a lot in the NFL, I think is a big place where like first round quarterbacks versus later quarterbacks. But like what kind of leash does he have when he starts to struggle because they don't have the investment in him that they have in an Alec Thomas and a Corbin Carroll uh, in a Dalton Varsho for that matter. So uh, I am a little bit concerned about that. I do think that in a vacuum, if I'm picking from this outfield, he's probably the odd one out um, simply because of the fact that he's never really shown the quality contact tool up until this year. Um, tons of power, like 25 home runs last year, 28 this year in the minor leagues, but he struggled a little bit as far as quality of contact and too many strikeouts up until he put it together this season. So I think less of a track record, older prospect, less of an investment in him. He probably has a short leash. I don't care. I'm all in on the D-backs holding five outfielders next season and just figuring it out. Just throw Dalton Varsho at catcher if you have to, because when there's a lefty on the mound, I want Garrett either, you know, in my outfield mm-hmm. or playing DH because I just need that guy because the way he swings that bat, it's like one though. It's just reminiscent of any big power bat back in the day because it looks like a freaking toothpick in his hands, like pretty much any legend back in the day. So I don't know if he's going to be an everyday major leaguer, but so far what I've seen, I've been impressed with Stone Garrett, and I like his profile, and also we just don't have enough brothers in Major League Baseball, so I would love to keep Stone Garrett for uh, on the MLB level for that reason as well. Always love having my brothers in baseball, but I want to do a little ranking now, uh, Lindsay, because now that Corbin Carroll's graduated, we got to redo the top five prospects for this D-backs organization. I figure, you know, we'll build suspense. We'll start from the bottom because we know who the top two guys are going to be, but we don't know in what order. So number five, Lindsay, for D-backs prospects. Uh, Guy that got drafted this this year, uh, Mm. right-hand pitcher Landon Sims. So I got to watch Landon Sims at Mississippi State. I know he's out right now with a TJ, and that scares a lot of people. For the most part, guys come back. 95% 95% of guys come back from a TJ now. So before the TJ, fastball, um, close to 100, 
it normally would sit 95, 96, but he could touch, you know, 98, 99 with it. Like a 70 grade fastball. I mean, elite level fastball. To go along with that, the slider is also a 70 grade slider. So as long as he comes back and both those pitches come back from the injury, he has probably the best one-two pitch mix in this organization. The question is going to be, what is the third pitch? He throws a changeup as his third. It's fringe to average. If you can improve that third pitch a little bit, I think you've got a middle of the rotation guy right there. Um, really big on Landon Sims. It's just a question of how healthy is he going to be, and you probably won't see him throw till towards the end of the year next year. Do you like it when prospects get the TJ early in their career as opposed to, you know, their fourth year in Major League Baseball? Because it feels like 80% of guys are going to have Tommy John surgery at some point in their career. So I'm like, I'd rather you just get it early, minor league level, rookie season. Like, just get it now, get it taken care of. Because sometimes guys come back after Tommy John and they're throwing even harder. From talking to organizations, they they don't mind the, the Tommy John happening when you're in college they're a little nervous about the Tommy John happening for a high schooler. And part of that is the resources around you to help you rehab. And part of that is what kind of usage are you having to have to give you a Tommy John in high school? Yeah. Uh, but a Tommy John in college, to me, I'm not as concerned because you probably had a decent rehab program at the college. You had resources available and something like this, where they took him anyway, you got him. You probably wouldn't have gotten him where you drafted him if he was healthy. So it can get you a discount on a guy as long as you're willing to wait a year. And I think he's worth waiting for. So how long would we have to wait for him? If he's getting Tommy John now, he's a rookie. It feels like it's probably going to be like four years before we see this guy. So, okay. So he had, um, he, he had, he made three starts in 2022. So I want to say he had the, he had the injury in March of 2022. Uh, We typically talk about a year and a half to come back. So I would expect him to be doing some throwing uh, and possibly some rehab games towards the end of next year. Um, And so you're looking at a full season in 24. I think that as long as his stuff comes back, you could see him uh, maybe late in the year in 24. I think a good comparison to the the development path could be a guy like Spencer Strider, who had Tommy John his final year at Clemson. Braves took him. He rehabbed. And then he went from a ball all the way to the majors in one year because he kind of stuck to that one, two pitch mix that he had. And he got both of those pitches back to the elite level that he has them at. So I think that's a good comp there. Uh, best case scenario end of the year in 20 and uh, 23, I'm sorry, in 24, if not 25 spring. And that's a great comp because we're recording this on Thursday and Spencer Strider just set the Braves uh, franchise record for strikeouts in the game with 16, what, 16, 16 strikeouts, two hits and in eight innings. So if you're saying Sims is getting comp to that guy, uh, yeah, I think the D-backs will take well, that because the what? What do you want to say? I would say like like think about it. It's the big the big fastball slider, uh, you know, body physical thicker lower body, uh, you know, elite one two pitch punch. Had a TJ their final year of college. Like it's it very much makes sense that that's the comp for him. Uh, the question is going to be, do, does his fastball and slider come back like Spencer Strider did after the injury? Yeah, and D-backs, I mean, they need pitchers because it's been like their biggest weakness from this developmental point, uh, development, developmental part of their system because they just don't produce enough starting pitchers and really relievers. Like the D-backs bullpen is terrible, and then our GM doesn't know how to sign a reliever either. So it just double deuces of badness right there. So, Lindsay, number five, D-backs prospect rankings. Yeah. So, or number four, excuse me. 
Lennis Sims number five. Number four, left hand pitcher Blake Walston. Ooh, okay. Uh, I think he has one of the better uh, ceilings of these pitching prospects. And I have a whole grouping of pitching prospects right here in the middle of the top 10. Um, the big thing that I wanted to look at here, when we looked at him last year, we saw that the conditioning wasn't quite there. He looked really good to start the season. And then as the year went on, he wore down a bit. The velocity dropped. The results dropped. From what I've heard this year, he's in better shape. We're seeing the numbers sustain through. Uh, he's had a little bit of struggles with control. I think he's got 42 walks right now in just over 100 innings. He's also got 125 strikeouts. Um, the the curveball is is a plus pitch. He just doesn't always have the control of it that he needs. Uh, slider and changeup are both above average, and then the fastball above average as well. He has the pitch mix. He has the four uh, average or above average pitches. It's just a question of physically what's his conditioning, and then can he get the curveball to land every single time. Uh, if he can, if he can tick those two boxes off, I think you're looking at a guy that could be a you know a number two, number three type as far as you know tons of pitches can go deep into games, and guys just can't seem to hit that lefty curveball. Yeah, when you say conditioning, is it like an arm fatigue kind of thing, or is it literally just like a weight? He's too, he's too big for himself. So so no, he's only six five one ninety five. I think it's a it's keeping the the effort behind the arm all season. He just okay. it, it, he just loses velo throughout the season, and then in a start, he loses it throughout a start. I just think he needs he honestly he needs a good healthy 10, 15 pounds of muscle behind him just to one it'll, it'll take up velocity a little bit, but then two it'll just help him have a little more durability in the body to make it through a season. I mean, it's a big adjustment. He's a guy that didn't go to college, and so. Um, it's a big adjustment from pitching in high school to pitching in the pros and his body just hasn't caught up with where his arm is yet. Yeah. And I wonder if he's just right now, like trying to throw gas in like the first half of his minor league season, then his arm is just fatigued in the second half, a little case of the mass and bum garner, but bum garner's arm gets fatigued for different reasons than the Blake Walston. So let's move on to number three, Lindsay, Lindsay in the D backs prospect rankings. Uh, a guy that does not need to worry about putting on any additional size. Um, right hand pitcher, Brandon fat. 64230. Okay. Um I so this year 137 innings, 176 strikeouts to 28 walks. The control, the command of the secondaries has really been there. And the thing that I like here is he's not I feel like when you look at the pitch mix, he's not overly reliant on any one pitch. Fastball sits lower, you know, mid to lower 90s, 93, 94. I wish he had a tick or two extra on it. He can reach back and get a 97. I wish he was a little more reliably there, uh, but it has a really high spin rate and it plays really well up in the zone. And that's one of the things we've seen a lot in baseball is the elevated fastball really be a weapon that hitters can't handle. Um, you know, slider breaks horizontally, so it, it breaks downward. Um, curveball, I think, is probably the, the, the last one of the four pitches, but he really just uses it to keep people honest and keep people off of the slider. And then the the changeup is a ground ball pitch. And so he's really good at mixing the four of those and then understanding what he's trying to do and actually executing that plan. So I like what I see from Brandon Fat. If I could, had, could wave a magic wand, I'd say give him an extra two mile an hour and you're set. 
Yeah, I remember when we recorded last time, I asked you which minor league prospects from this D-back system do you think could be called up and make an impact right now? And you mentioned Fat as one of those guys, and he was still in double-A at the time you said that. So for Brandon Fat, like, is he someone that you think could be called up and, you know, come into spring training next season, then maybe he does the Alec Thomas where he waits a month and then gets called up to the major league level in, like, I don't know, May or something like that? Given the sample size, he only has five games in triple-A right now. I think he's going to have two more starts before the season ends. I'm trying to think when the AAA calendar ends, maybe three. He's a guy I expect him like an Alex Thomas. They they wait conveniently right past the Super 2 deadline. Then he gets called up and he has um, a chance to do it next year. That gives them a chance to see what his velocity gains look like over the winter, as well as make sure that he is ready to come up. Uh, with that that little bit of extra time in AAA. But he's a guy that I definitely expect to be one of the last guys reassigned from Major League Camp to Minor League Camp and one of the first guys to come up after the, the Super 2 deadline next year. So if he gets called up, what kind of pitcher is he? Is he more because you mentioned he produces a lot of ground balls, so would he be more a ground ball pitcher with a low strikeout rate, or can he kind of marry both of them? Like, what's kind of his profile if he got called up? It would be marrying both of them. So, I mean... He, he, his strikeout rate is somewhere around 10 or 11 strikeouts per nine innings. I mean, okay. absolutely excels at that. Very, really, really low walk rate. I think for his career in the minor leagues, he walks less than two guys per nine innings. Um, and, and so it's, it's more of strikeouts when I can. When I can't, I'll get a ground ball. And so that's kind of where I see his game and really um, has the potential to be Simply because the velocity is not overpowered, I don't want to call him like a number two, but probably a solid number three for you. Guy that okay. can get through a lineup probably three times uh, because he has different ways to get you out. He's not just relying on striking you out. He can um, make you ground out as well. And real quick, I'm going to give you a curveball. So if you don't have notes on this guy, don't feel bad at all. But I just want to ask you, like, did you have any thoughts of Tommy Henry when he got called up? Did you... Think of Tommy Henry as like a major league starting pitcher or, or a guy that could be in the back end of your rotation because obviously he got crushed by the Phillies in his most recent start. But so far for majority of the season, like he's been pretty good for this D-backs team. I don't love that he's like a not low 90s fastball thrower, but he's been good at mixing in that breaking pitch, even though he didn't have a great feel for it in his last start. I thought so far this season, he's been more impressive than I thought, even though I didn't feel like he had a really high ceiling uh, getting called up. Yeah, so even for a lefty, the velocity is too low, right? I mean, he's mm-hmm. he's 91, 92 or so. Not necessarily where you want a major league pitcher to be. Um, the the changeup, I think he he, he needs to throw the changeup more simply to keep guys off the fastball. The fastball is hittable. Um, the the I I want to say it's it's like a slurve. The slider and the curve just blend okay. together into a you know into a slurve. Um, not necessarily amazing. But he can mix them decently. He's going to be a guy that, at I think at best, he's going to be a back-end guy. He's going to eat innings for you during the regular season, go out there every fifth day. Um, and then when the postseason comes around, he'll, he'll be that starter you don't need in the postseason. You move him to the back end of the bullpen. Um, you know He's helping you with long relief or if a starter gets knocked out early in the playoffs. But he absolutely like, is useful – uh, he because he has a little bit of deception in that whole thing, and the fastball changeup combo can play well when he uses the changeup enough. He just doesn't quite use it enough. Okay, I don't mind either if he's just an innings guy, long reliever, because we already have a lefty who's really not that good, and Caleb Smith who's doing that. So we could just take him out and put Tommy Henry there. Like I would greatly appreciate that. But now it's time for the the main entree, Lindsay, the top two prospects, and 
we got to do a drum roll because we got to know who you have at number two, Lindsay. So number two among all D-backs prospects right now. Drew Jones. Which is tough because he hasn't played a game for you. Wow. But just the potential in a Drew Jones from what we saw, he's he's one of the rare high school players that we have all of the same level of analytics on. We have the track man. We have the biomechanical markers. Uh, we have the rat. We, we have all of that stuff. We've seen him do all of those things. So uh, we have a lot enough information to say that a lot of the scouting on him has been correct. And the question is just going to be more of how long does it take him to get there? And where do these tools end up as far as the ceiling? Um, the arm looks to be somewhere between plus and double plus the defense, the speed he's laser timed. We're pretty confident that the speed's there as well. It's just a question of him adjusting to major league pitching uh, and finding the power with the wooden bat. How long does that take him? And then does do any of those other tools back up a bit as he physically matures and gets older? That's something we saw his, his dad do it as his dad got closer to 30, his dad's speed started to back up a bit. He thickened out a little bit in the midsection, ended up being out of baseball actually early for as good as he was um, at age 2021. So Drew Jones, a lot of confidence in the projection because we have so much data on him. Just a question of what's the adjustment period for him, especially missing this whole fall with a shoulder injury. Yeah, and so there's not really much analysis you could have outside of what you just said from what you've seen from his high school stuff because, like you said, he's out the season with a shoulder because – I'm guessing number one on your prospect list is a guy who was out with a shoulder last season in Jordan Lawler. Am I correct in that, Lindsay? You are correct in that. Jordan Lawler, um, you know, because every Diamondbacks first round pick has to injure their shoulder. It's a tradition now. That's what we do around here. But no, um, so Jordan Lawler is a really interesting one to me because I initially had him as a 2024 guy. I mean, he spent this whole year, 19 years old, in high A Hillsborough. Um, you know, he went low A, high A, and now in Amarillo. But like, look at what he did in high A, 288, 385, 477 at age 19 in high A. Um, the way that he acclimated to the new level and how quickly he did it made us kind of push the timeline up a bit. I initially thought he'd be a 24 guy. I think there's a chance, uh, depending on how his season finishes this year in Amarillo, that you see him get a cup of coffee at the end of the year next year. Uh, part of that will also depend on, one, can he clean up the defense a bit? I think he's at like a 906 fielding, and it's just a consistency issue. Uh, it's, it's you know, mistakes from focus more so than a skill thing. And then what does the offensive production at short look like for you? You've got Gerardo Perdomo. You've got Nick Ahmed, the great Nick Ahmed. So what does the offensive production look like for you at short? towards the end of the year and do you need the bat or do you have the the runway to let Jordan Lawler come up and test himself at the end of the year next year I think that's the real question but I've moved the timeline up to, tw to late 2023 yeah I could tell you the production short if it's gonna be Perdomo or Nick Ahmed Manning short there's gonna be zero production Lindsay but but if you have a guy like Josh Rojas at shortstop, then maybe a guy like Emmanuel Rivera at third, now you got some offensive potential. Maybe Rojas is not as good as Nick Ahmed defensively, but I don't care because he's leaps and bounds better than him offensively, and I'd rather have an offensive bat in my lineup than, a than an offensive liability in my lineup. So from that standpoint, I would rather have Josh Rojas playing shortstop. But I would, you know, in the perfect world, Jordan Lawler gets called up next season because I just want to go 
bop, bop, bop. I want Corbin Carroll this season. I want Jordan Lawler next season. And then the year after that, I want Drew Jones. So how realistic is this dream, Lindsay? I know Drew Jones is out this year, but if he mashes, you know, right away, could he spend maybe a year or two in the minor leagues? And then Jordan Lawler has that cup of coffee, like you said, next season, because we've seen it more recently in baseball than probably ever before with the Fernando Tatises, the Wander Francos, like these guys, they crush in the minor league level. Even a guy like Ben Tendy, like if they crush on the minor league level, the teams will call them up quickly. And you know what? We all know about service time manipulation. But also, if you have a superstar in the making, sometimes you just got to call that guy up right away. Well, one of the things that they've done about service time manipulation is the team gets rewarded if the player's in the top for the voting now, too. So you kind of have an incentive to wait till after the Super 2. You know, you don't give him extra year of arbitration, but if he's good enough to win or be in the finalist for, for Rookie of the Year, you get a reward as well as he gets the year of service time. Um, I think that a lot of it depends on the health, the, the health and rehab of Drew Jones. If he gets over that shoulder issue fairly quickly and has a full season next year, I think it's entirely plausible to think the end of 23, you see Lawler and the end of 24, you see Jones and going into 25, you have most of these guys in place. You've already called up an Ivan Melendez. Uh, you may or may not have called up a Devison de los Santos. Um, we're watching the strikeout rate for him, see what he does at third. Uh, but I think there absolutely is a path provided that the shoulder injury rehabs well for Jones, that you get him at the end of 24 and you have this, this in place and you're just figuring out what is the pitching doing. Yeah, and then if you have Drew Jones, Jordan Lawler, and Corbin Carroll on the major league level, how are you setting those three up in your lineup? What, who, who's the leadoff hitter there? Who's the cleanup guy there? Like, how do you... How do you figure out those three? That is really tough. That is that is very hard. Um, I think part of it's probably one asking them what they're comfortable doing. If 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 we go with my theory and we put Corbin Carroll in that Ronald Acuna leadoff spot, then when Drew Jones comes up, I don't want to change that. I don't want to take Double Corbin down. Carroll out of that spot. Uh, but eventually, as he gets a little bit older it's going to be time to transition him into a different spot and have a different leadoff hitter. I probably have Corbin Carroll one. Um, it, this is assuming everybody hits their ceilings. Corbin yeah. Carroll one, Drew Jones at probably two. And then I'm going with um, probably, uh, uh, I think Kristen Walker is probably, probably my cleanup hitter. I probably got Ivan Melendez at five. Um, Alex Thomas is kind of towards the bottom as maybe like a second leadoff hitter more so than anything else. But, you know, Rojas, you can put him wherever you want. You can put him at three. You can put him at six. You can, I mean, Varsho, there's tons of options and it's really hard to figure this out. But I want those speedy guys, um, Carol and Jones, back to back one and two up there. Would you maybe put Lawler at three then? Because the thing is with those three guys, like they all kind of hit for power and speed, which is a nice thing. And then like you even mentioned like a Ketel Marte just now. So it's like, where would Ketel Marte fit in that? Is he all of a sudden your fifth hitter or Christian Walker four? Then like you said, you got Melendez maybe up there at number six or Rojas and Thomas. Like just thinking about this lineup and what it could be in five years. It's like, this is why GMs keep their jobs way longer than they should because they just keep selling you hope. It's like, don't worry, we're rebuilding. Just wait five years for these guys to call up. Oh, we're going to be good, you know, in, in 2024. Five and it's like as a D-backs fan, like yeah, I'm excited for when they get called up and hopefully they hit their ceilings. But man, I might be waiting a long time for that. Yeah, Marte. I mean, Marte could could bat third. I was hesitant. I was thinking about his performance this year and thinking, yeah. like, should he bat third? I don't think he should <laughs> bat third. But it, assuming he's back, he could bat third then. 
Um, but I mean, like, there's just there, like you said, there's tons of options. Baller could slot into the three spot. Um, you know, lots of different ways you could set this up. I think the big thing is get that speed on base up front, and then let your two big guys and Walker and Melendez drive them home. I just love the fact that the oldest guy on this team in the position players is Christian Walker, and he's barely over thirty. Blows yeah. my mind how young this team is, and I love that for their future. He's the oldest guy, and he's still arbitration eligible, which is crazy. So for this D-backs team, they got a bright future, and we're hoping maybe 2025 World Series champions. Lindsey Crosby, <laughs> Locked On MLB Prospects. Thank you for hopping on today. Where can the listeners find you? I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. My show is on Twitter at Locked On Farm. It's on YouTube, available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have questions for the show, every Monday is our mailbag, entirely sourced from listener questions. Send those to me, send those to the show, or you can email us. Locked on MLB prospects at gmail.com. Yeah, go check out Lindsay's podcast. And also, don't forget to check out the Ultimate Pro Football Preview 2022, an eight episode extravaganza to get you ready for the NFL season. The local team experts of the Locked On Podcast Network, plus a betting angle from Lee Sterling of Locked On Bets, all combining into one Ultimate NFL Preview. Search for Ultimate Pro Football Preview 2022 on your Odyssey app. YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lindsay, thank you for hopping on today, sir, and I'll catch you next time. Uh-huh.